Please do turn with me tonight to a different text than the one that we have read in our two readings, 2 Corinthians, the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians and chapter 7 and verse 10. And this will be our singular text tonight, verse 10 of chapter 7 of the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Our subject tonight is genuine repentance. What does it mean to truly repent of sin? There is within this verse that I shall read that which is false repentance and that which is true repentance. And I wish to draw the contrast and show the enormous gulf between these two kinds of repentance mentioned. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Sin is the greatest problem of the world. Forget climate change, forget the cost of living crisis, forget even the wars and the conflicts, they are all the consequence of sin. Sin is very simply the breaking of God's laws. Just one of them is sin. Just one sin, and we've done millions, just one sin is enough to take us away from God forever, to bear the punishment of our own sin. The Bible teaches us that we sin because we are sinful. It tells us that we have a sinful nature within us. We were born into sin. This is not fashionable. We often speak of the love of Christ. We speak of faith in Christ. But you can't distinguish faith from repentance. The two are like Siamese twins. They are distinct, but they're not to be separated in this case. They go hand in hand. The one only comes with the other. Repentance and faith. And the reason that we need to repent is because we are sinners. Do you know that word sin? It's my conviction that the BBC and the widespread mass media in this country have almost wiped out that word from our vocabulary. Maybe it won't be long before the Oxford Dictionary has it struck out. Sin. Something that we don't want to mention. Even when a horrendous crime and you know, there are things that we might consider to be little, not even using the word crime, but all of it is sin. But when the worst horrendous crime comes into the national appearance and public eye, you don't hear somebody saying, that was sinful. That was breaking God's laws. We shouldn't be surprised. Our understanding of sin is directly linked to our awareness of God and our nearness to God. And as a nation, we are far, far from God. 
And so we're not surprised that in a nation that's departed so far from God, where we are post-God, so to speak, not true, of course, that that word sin has been crossed out, obliterated. And we need to have a great sense of the holiness of God. If we knew God is holy, we would know what sin is. And we would feel our sin and know our sin. And we would be convinced that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's another reason we shouldn't be surprised. The Bible speaks about, ironically, the deceitfulness of sin. Do you know the greatest lie of sin is that there is no sin. Sin in its deceitfulness says, just ignore it. It's not really the great problem. Oh yes, there's Hitler, and there is Stalin, and there's others down through history, the Yorkshire Ripper. Oh, we could mention many more characters, but we put them over there, instead of us just being all part of the same human race. None is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3, verse 10. Jeremiah the prophet says, the heart of man is deceitful. It lies to you and to me and says, sin is irrelevant. We've moved beyond it. That's Victorian. That's something that we're now far more sophisticated and yet, how do you explain why the world is as it is tonight? I would hope that there's nobody here, even the youngest child who can hear me and hear my words now, there's nobody that would say, I am not a sinner. If anybody says that, I'm tempted to say, stand up. Because if you do, Everybody will see you're a liar because we are all sinners. And we, as I prayed in the great words of Jonathan Edwards in his famous, famous sermon that was the means of a great revival in America, we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. But our message tonight is those hands are angry but the same hands that are angry sent Christ with his loving hands to stretch them wide, to have nails pushed through them, to bear the punishment for my sin, for your sin, if you would trust in him and repent and come to him tonight. Do you accept? Do you acknowledge your sin? If I was to unfold a scroll and roll it down the streets of Bedford of my sin, it would be like a charge sheet. Do you know when somebody comes, a man or woman, and they stand in the dock in a court, and the judge or maybe one of the solicitors reads out the charge sheet on behalf of the prosecution, we would have to say of our own selves, guilty, 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 and so on. That charge sheet. 
Put yourself tonight in the dock and see your own personal sin before God, with whom there are no secrets, nothing is hidden. You can't hide from God. You can run, but you can't hide. No, the question is not whether we're sinners. That's so obvious. It's so plain. I could ask your parent. Some of you don't have parents who are alive, but if I could, if I could ask them, every single parent would say, my boy, my girl, oh, I know they're sinners. And you know some of the worst sins we give to our children, don't we? We're born into sin, as we read, shapen in iniquity. So the question is this, not are you a sinner, but what's your attitude to your own sin? I don't say this to accuse anybody tonight. We're all the same. We're like ants viewed from the top of Mount Everest, if you could see them. We're small, we're insignificant, we're all the same, a sinful human race. You can't distinguish one ant from another. You don't look at one and say, that's bigger than the other. We're just the same. All sinful human beings before God. Well, I want to put to you some of the attitudes, the wrong attitudes, before we turn to our text. Maybe you do admit it. Maybe you would say privately to me or someone else that you trust, yes, I have sinned, and I know I'm a sinner. I know I've done and thought and been and am and are sinful. But you know, it's not that important. There's other things in life. There's, there's joyful things. There's, there's life to live. There's eating and drinking and there's this, that and the other. Sin is not the big issue. Actually, what's the big issue is my life and how I want to live it. But you know, I would say to you tonight, if you think sin is a little thing, God doesn't say that. God says sin is the big thing in your life. A child here that you've disobeyed your parents and grieved their heart. Maybe there have been times you've broken their hearts with your willfulness. I think I can say this because my mother's not with me now. But the time I hurt her the most was when I brought tears to her eye. There didn't need to be a punishment. That was enough to see the hurt, to see the pain to see the discomfort caused by my actions, my words that cut her to the heart. And how much more, if that's to a loving mother, how much more to our loving Heavenly Father when he sees your sin. No, sin is important. The Word of God says it is appointed unto man once to die, then the judgment. There's no escaping. Sin is the issue that will be dealt with. The moment you die, your sin will be opened up and it will be dealt with. Either because Christ has dealt with it. And Christ will say, go free. 
I've taken the penalty. I've died as your substitute in your place. I've taken your sin. And now there's no condemnation for you. You shall be with me forever. But if not, your sin will be borne by you. The judgment of God will be poured out on you. And then sin will be the issue. Well, secondly, you might say it's unimportant. You might say, well, well, my sin, do you know, it's not really as bad as others. I look at that boy at school and, oh, he's really naughty. I look at that girl and, oh, she's dishonest. She's always lying, exaggerating. She's always boasting. We call that comparative righteousness. We like to do it. We choose the lowest possible standard. Somebody next to us and we think, well, if we can just beat that, if we can just be a little bit better in our own eyes. But do you know the God who made us in his image? He requires not 50% or 75 or 99. He requires 100%. Holiness is not holiness if there's any element of sin. He would have us to live and to be in his perfect image. We were intended to be image bearers, and we're not. We're tarnished, spoiled, stained, rusting. God would have us to be like him. Well, thirdly, sin is not important. My sin is better or not so bad as somebody else's that I've chosen as my benchmark. But then the third argument that's very commonly trotted out. Yes, I have sinned. I know I've sinned. But my overdraft is nowhere as big as my savings account. My overdraft, yes, it's overdrawn and I'm in debt and I've done wrong things, I admit it. But look at my bank account. I've saved and saved. I've done good things. Made my bed taken a meal round to an elderly neighbor, given to charity. I've even been a trustee on a charity. I've been a governor at school. I've done this, I've done that. And you say, look, this is what some religions say. It's like a pair of weighing scales. All that you need is just a bit more, just to outweigh. God nowhere in the Bible says that. He says you need to be perfect, for I am perfect. Do you know we're not sinners because we sin? We sin because we're sinners. It's our nature. We find it so easy. We don't even have to think about it. Yes, there is that kind of sin that we read about. King David plotted. His adultery with Bathsheba, he looked, he lusted, he saw, he schemed, and then, is it worse? I don't know. What's the worst sin? It's usually the cause of the sin that comes out of the heart. And then he tries to cover up his sin. Did you notice the death warrant was put in the hands of the one that was to be sent 
to the white-hot heat at the front of the battle. And because of the honesty of that man, he didn't open the envelope or the scroll saying, kill him, destroy him. What an awful thing sin is. Sin that deceives, tries to cover up. But you know my message tonight, there is a remedy. There is a power that's even more powerful than king's sin. There is a purity that is vastly more powerful than the stain of sin. And there is a price that's been paid. Christ and his shed blood, his perfect life. Let's turn very rapidly to this text. Three points very quickly. There is a sorrow of the world. There is a godly sorrow. And then I want to try to define what true repentance is. There is a huge contrast here. It says at the end of the verse, but the sorrow of the world works death. Let me describe that kind of sorrow. We see this sometimes with children, but sadly, I've seen it with grown men in their 70s who've done something they shouldn't have done, lived a lifestyle they shouldn't have led. We see this sorrow of the world. It's a wrong sorrow. It's an unhelpful sorrow. Paul mentions this kind of sorrow, the sorrow that works death. It destroys, it damages It doesn't lead to anything productive. It's a sort of self-pitying sorrow. We know we've done wrong and we realize it's caused problems at home, at work, in life. We begin to feel sorry for self and say, oh, I've lost something. I've lost the joy that I might have had. I've lost something, my reputation, my name, I've lost peace in my heart and I begin to feel sorry for myself. That's the sort of sorrow that Paul is talking about here, the sorrow of the world, human sorrow, self-pity. A husband commits adultery like King David and he sees he's lost the union, the sweetness, the intimacy that he once had, and he begins to feel sorry, and he wants his wife back. But he's not sorry for the damage he's caused, and the pain, and the disloyalty, and the unfaithfulness of his eyes, and his hands, and his heart. He's sorry sorry for himself, and the loss. There's a A sorriness that's superficial, it lasts for a day. We see the damage and we're over it quickly. We replace it with something else. We're not really sorry for the damage. We're not sorry, we just regret. There's no real repentance, just, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. We take on some form of victim mentality. That's common today. People think of themselves and want to think of themselves as victims. Oh, I'm a victim of a broken marriage. I'm a victim of this and that. 
but we forget that we've contributed probably the majority to the damage that's been caused. Sorrow of the world, it leaves a sour taste. Sorrow that forgets God altogether. It doesn't consider that sin is before God, King David said, against thee only, I like the word ultimately there, because we do sin against each other, but ultimately my sin is against God, against thee ultimately have I sinned. And the sorrow of the world leaves God out. It says it's just between me and you. And it says I can move on quickly and pour on you if you can't. The sorrow of the world. Let's move, I could say so much more, but the right sorrow. The beginning of the verse, godly sorrow. This is the right kind of sorrow. It's God-given. It's actually a gift. If we're to come with godly sorrow, that's because the Holy Spirit has worked in a heart. He's woken us up. He's made us to feel, to see our sin. And this godly sorrow works inside our heart, our conscience, our mind. And this is deep. This is before God. The first person we consider with godly sorrow is God. I think of what I've done and I'm ashamed. What I've been. What I said. What I've done. It's as though Nathan the prophet, you can read it later in 2 Samuel, comes in and says to King David as he did, you are the man. He tells that parable. And there's a tingling down the spine of mine when we hear those words, you are the man. You did it. You can't hide, David. You were the one that robbed a man's wife. You were the one that murdered. You were the one that deceived. You are the one that tried to cover it up. You're the one that gave the letter to the man that you wanted to murder. Godly sorrow is ultimately before God first and foremost. It's deep, it's sincere, it's lasting. We don't get over it in five minutes. I'm sorry. Won't you accept it? No, godly sorrow lingers long. We feel it. Sincerely, do you feel your sin tonight? Do you feel the sins that the Holy Spirit lays upon your heart? Of course, we can't remember all of them. We've done so many. But we remember the big ones. We remember the categories, the families. We remember that we're liars, that we're proud, that we've been jealous, that we've done so many things. And do you know what godly sorrow does? It wants to burn the books of sin, the magazines, the accounts that we've subscribed to. Godly sorrow says, I won't go there again. I won't go with those friends again that got me drunk. 
I won't go with the people that God says will not be good friends. No, I'll go with godly influences. I won't go to the place and with the people and doing the things that God says, no, 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 and we know it deep down. We know it's foolish to go with such people. Repentance says, godly sorrow says, no, I will change. With God's help, I can't do it myself. There will be a complete turning round, a change of geography, as well as a change of heart. It burns the books. The word here, repentance, I have to try and explain it. It's two words. One of them has become the name of a social media organization and product, Meta. Metanoia. Meta means change, turning. Noia means heart, knowledge, understanding. And so the word repentance means a total change and turning around of our heart and knowledge and understanding. Once I viewed sin as a small thing, now I see it as the biggest thing in my life. I won't go to sleep tonight. It's the dominating theme in my life. I have to come before God through Christ. I have to confess my sin. I have to tell him what I've been and done. And I won't wait until I have mercy, until I have peace. Repentance and godly sorrow doesn't wait to repent. Do you know you cannot repent too soon? because you don't know how soon it may be too late. Too late. Too late to repent. Because you no longer have the burden. It's been snatched away from you. Something else has taken its place. A pleasure, a friendship, a pastime. But I want to come thirdly as we close, and I borrow this and acknowledge that these are the six ingredients that Thomas Watson defined. How can we define true, genuine repentance? Not a sham, not crocodile tears, but true repentance. Thomas Watson said, there are six things. If one of them's left out, it's a sham, it's false. The first, he said, is this. Genuine repentance needs to have a sight of sin. We need to see it for what it truly is. We need to think of our sin. We need to remember what we've done, remember what we've been, remember it's seen by God, and we even need to view it for just a few hours and bring it before God and dwell upon it and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Have a sight of your sin. The sin that God does see. The second thing Thomas Watson said, is we don't just need to have a sight of it, then move away, we need to have a sorrow. A godly sorrow. It needs to weigh upon the conscience. It needs to weigh upon the heart. Maybe there does need to be shedding of tears. Maybe there needs to be a morning in times of revival. I've said this before, those miners, the coal miners, 
in Bristol. Great gutters came down their face because these blasphemous men felt the affront, the offense, the burden of their own dirty, filthy language. That was just one of their very many sins. A sight of sin, a sorrow for sin, and as David said in Psalm 51, there needs to be a confession. You need to put words in your mouth against thee. Thee ultimately have I sinned. I acknowledge my sin and my sin is ever before me. I can't get it out of my mind, out of my heart. It's dominating my life. Please, Lord, come. I confess my sin. The fourth thing he mentioned is a shame. Do you know you can tell when somebody is truly sorry? Not just regret for the consequences, but sorry for what we've done. There is a shame. Sometimes people, even in the church, do very terrible things. And the church rightly has to discipline them. And the truly repentant person says, I'm willing to do anything. I'm willing to be shamed. I'm willing for the church to know my sin. That's just one element. What about all the sin of my life? We don't have to parade your sin, but you do have to have shame for your sin before God. You do have to feel ashamed of your sin. The fifth thing, there has to be a hatred. You've got to look at it. You've got to see the smoke has got in your clothes You've got to see the stench and the smell and the stain and say, I don't want that anymore. I'm taking off those clothes. I want the perfect righteousness of Christ. I want to be clothed by him. I want to have his righteousness. I have none of my own. I need to hate my sin more and more and have a loathing of it. Do you feel that about your sin? You won't go back. You won't return to the vomit. The sixth thing is this. There needs to be a turning from sin. That's what that word means. Repentance. Metanoia. Turning round. Let me close with an illustration. There's a place in Canada, in Labrador, it's a strange little town. It's called, if I pronounce it rightly, Waybush or Wabush. And it's completely isolated until a few years ago there was only one road in and one road out. You had to get through the wilderness to get there. And that town is just like sin. One way in. One way out. The only way is to go and turn round, to come back the way you've come. You've been going away from God. You're in the far country. You need to turn round with his help, with his strength. You need to return to Christ Jesus. The town of sin, one way in, 
one way out. That's biblical repentance. And you know when you've realized you're in the town of sin, you won't linger long there, as Lot tried to do. And you won't turn round as his wife did. You'll get out. Get out the way you came. And turn to God. There is a godly sorrow. It leads to and works repentance. Repentance that's joined to faith. You can't separate the two. The two come together. I can't tell you what comes first. I think they come together. You exercise faith, you'll repent. You repent of your sins, you will exercise faith in Christ. The Lord will give you everything that you need. Faith is a gift. Repentance is a gift. Oh, come to him tonight. Don't stay in your sin. Look to him. Have a sight of your sin. Have a sorrow for sin. Have a confession over your sin. Have a shame and a hatred of sin. And turn, turn away and turn to Christ. And he will save you this very night. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we don't like to speak of sin, but we need to. For if we are to come to repentance and faith, we first need to consider the great problem. And then we can see the remedy and the solution in Christ, which is perfect and complete. And it is available to all who come and seek it. To all who Christ would work within, by thy Spirit, to make us to desire him, even Jesus Christ, our lovely Saviour, may many come to him tonight and lean upon him for rest and comfort and pardon and forgiveness. We pray in Jesus' name.